We are going to jump right into it today. Familiar passage, uh, brilliant passage. We are in John chapter 11, and we're going to, instead of starting by standing and reading the word together like we normally do, I'm going to embed, no, 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 instead of, <laughs> instead of, I know you guys are ready to roll, I love it, instead of, I'm going to embed the entire passage in the sermon today because we have this incredible story that's going to take us for this brilliant ride today. So let's pray, and then we will be in the book of John. All right, Father, by the power of the Spirit, would you help us to see the beauty of Jesus Christ? Would you help me this morning to preach from from my guts, for the good of my brothers and sisters, for your glory. We thank you that you are here with us today, that we are in each other's presence, in your presence. So would you lead us, would you guide us, would you bring alive that which is dead in us? We love you, we need you, it is in the precious name of Christ that we pray, amen, amen. Well, dearly beloved, we have gathered here today for a funeral, a funeral in reverse. We have gathered here today to marvel at a dead man walking, and we have gathered here today to behold a strange and a severe glory. Today we go back 2,000 years to a small village. We go into an atmosphere of death that Jesus walks into and dramatically alters, that he breathes on, that he reshapes to display his glory. It's a day of mourning that he has intended for joy. Now Lazarus is a well-known name for sure, even to those who don't know the Bible all that well. It's a name that's synonymous with resurrection. Now, Lazarus comes from a Hebrew name, uh, Eleazar, which means God is my help, or God has helped. El-Azar, God has helped. God, my help. Lazarus, the man who was dead and then was not dead, the dead man walking. Now, when I do funerals, the text that I often turn to is this one before us, which is John chapter 11, as it is full of realism and, and hope. It's it's gritty, and it's, it's glorious. And it's honest enough to say, look, a man has died. A man has died, and that's a hard thing. But then it turns our eyes to the resurrection, and that is an unimaginably good thing. So it's honest, and it's hopeful. Now, a quick bit of context for our passage today. This is the seventh sign that John, the apostle, holds up. John, the writer of this book, holds this seventh sign up for us to see who Jesus is and to see that it's in him that we have eternal life. And so let's get a quick look. Let's survey the, the structure of the book um, and just to understand where we are to locate ourselves. So we are in the seventh sign. See down where that star is, chapter 11. Now, the book of John, you, you could cut right down the middle. Think of it like a book that's before you. There's, there's the left page and the right page. And there's, there's the pivot, there's the hinge, there's the binding right in the middle. 
And so today's sign, the seventh sign, results in and it has collateral blessings that lead to the hinge of this book. So we've gone now from prologue into the book of signs. Now after this chapter, we move into the book of glory and then the epilogue. So we are at a glorious and a grave pivot in the story. So it's incredibly key to John in understanding the book. And as we have seen with the other signs, these things that point to something greater than the miracle itself, as we've seen with other signs, there are some odd bits to this story that require us to, to re-see the world, that require us to reimagine the kingdom of heaven, to reimagine how it is that Jesus is actually renewing all of this. So the story is going to carry us forward, so let's go ahead and step into its current, and I will do my best to point out some wonders along the way. So we'll pick up chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord... He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And we'll stop there for a moment. Now a certain man was ill. That's a great start to a story, isn't it? We have a person We have a problem, both presented together. There's an ache, there's a tension, there's something that needs to be resolved. And this man is Lazarus. And he lived and he died in a small village called Bethany. Now here's an image of Bethany from 1890. We can get that slide up there. So this uh, is what the village would have looked like, or at least close to what it would have looked like during Jesus' day. This is about two miles outside of Jerusalem, to the east on the slope of the Mount of Olives. This is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. See, Mary and Martha were his sisters. And it turns out Jesus was their friend. This is kind of where Jesus' Airbnb was when he got close to Jerusalem, right? He, he loved hanging out with them. They would come. They would, they would eat together. They were his friends. He had a deep and abiding love for them. But now Lazarus is in bad shape and Jesus is not in town. He's not in the guest room. So they send out a message to go and bring him home. Because they're hurting, they're, they're grieving, things are looking bad. Now, somehow this bad news is going to turn into really great news that will display his glory. So let's watch, let's see how this thing unfolds. Verse 5 through 12. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? You can't do that. That's crazy. It's crazy talk, Jesus. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the light, he... He stumbles because the light is not in him. Excuse me, if anyone is in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Oh, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. We don't need to go. 
Now here we get to this odd bit. Did you pick it up? This really strange bit. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay. Then, verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Just hold on. Did, did John mistype the sentence into his laptop? Like Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So he waited two more days rather than going to help. Shouldn't it say something like, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So he made haste to get there and set all things right because he could do it. He had just healed a blind man. So he can do it. But instead he delays. He waits around. It seems like Jesus is going to be too late. Hmm. It's a little weird, right? A little weird. Well, when it's time to go, the disciples, again, they hedge. They say, why would you want to go to Jerusalem? They just tried to kill you. And Jesus says, fine. That's fine. I have work to do. And I'm going to get it done. The dark won't stop the light. And then he tells them Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they um, don't quite get it. And they're like, well, then it'll be fine. <laughs> okay. And then Jesus responds. Look at verse 13. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, guys. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, well, let us also go that we may die with him. So Jesus says, guys, you misunderstand. He's not napping, right? He's dead. And I'm going to go wake him up. Sleeping is a euphemism for death um, in the New Testament. He says, I'm going to bring him back. And so then they head out now to Bethany. And I would have loved to have heard the, the buzz and the expectation and maybe the trepidation in their conversation as they made their way to what was going to be a funeral in reverse. See, there's a strange and a severe glory in here for us to see. There's something powerful in the story that we need to take deep into who we are. One of the slants of light that this story brings to us is that Jesus is not a quick fix dealer. Jesus is not a quick fix dealer. Jesus is an eternal life giver. And if we're honest, we often approach him as a quick fix dealer. He kind of gets sidelined, kind of gets marginalized until there's a moment of need. Then we go to him, quick, fix it, thanks, moving on, back to my life. He's not a quick fix dealer. He is an eternal life giver. So he waits two days. He says this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. See, he has a plan. He's playing some kind of divine long game in this whole thing. His aim is that his glory would be revealed and that the disciples would believe and that they would have eternal life. See, sometimes he won't do what we ask him to do when we ask him to do it because he's going to do something in us that we don't know he needs to do within us. And he is for our total, eternal flourishing. And we learn here that this delay is a delay that's actually born of love. Jesus wasn't too busy. 
Jesus wasn't incapable. He was loving. He was listening to his Father's will. So he was planning and timing things accordingly. Jesus is unhurried because his aim isn't to relieve immediate pain. He's not a narcotic. He's our Savior. It's a big difference. He's not after a quick fix. He is after eternal life. He doesn't function like some kind of vending machine where we put in a coin called prayer and he instantly responds and drops the goodie into the outlet. And that's not because he's cruel. It's because, again, he's after our ultimate good. He loves you too much to be your quick fix dealer. And so this means that sometimes he does very strange things, that he makes counterintuitive moves because he's operating from a divine, eternal perspective and we're operating from a very finite perspective and often a distorted and blurred perspective. So what is greater than a quick fix for Lazarus in this situation, a quick fix for Mary and Martha? What is worth the severity of the situation? Well, let's watch how this plays out. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. The news had gotten out. He was dead. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That was an understanding in the theology that in the last day then people would, would rise, rise up. Now four days. Four days is meant to communicate that Jesus is too late. He is too late. Lazarus has died by the time, most likely by the time that Jesus has received the news He's far away, it's going to take him some time to travel, and he's going to delay two days. Four days in the grave. His beloved friend was decomposing now. There's a common thought among the rabbis that the spirit of the person hovered by the body for three days. And by the time he hit the third, the end of the third day, and on to the fourth, there was no chance. Like, they weren't partly dead. It wasn't like a Princess Bride thing, right? Mostly dead. They, like, they were dead, dead. They were gone. His friend's decomposing. It's a heart-wrenching scene. Jesus is too late. It's too late. Now Martha, being consistent with her character throughout the story, uh, with her busy, get-it-done personality, hears that Jesus is on the road, so she runs out to meet him. She's very proactive, right? She's a get-it-done kind of person. And then she says, Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. She's kind of blunt, too. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. It's such a human moment. Her grief spills out, right? Her grief spills out in the where were you? The one you love. Smells like death. Where were you? You didn't show up when we needed you. You're too late. Yet there's trust mixed with the tears. Human beings are complex, right? There's trust, there's faith, there's, there's doubt, all these things kind of swirling together within us. 
Verse 25 moves us forward. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. And so here, here we have it. Here is the thing that was so gravely important that Jesus would wait two more days. Here is that which is greater than the quick fix that their family needed. This is the seventh sign. And here's what the seventh sign is. The seventh sign is that Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the life. Whoever trusts Jesus will rise when they die. For now they have eternal life. And they will never die in eternal death. Because they are united to their creator, the very source, the very fountain of life. And though their body will die, they will rise again because now there is spiritual life flowing through them. Followers of Jesus, (laughs) unless you're around when he comes back, you will die. You will have a grave. You will have, have a casket. But you will rise. There will be a bodily resurrection. And also, if you were an apprentice to Jesus, you will never truly die. Your, your soul you will never die because you are in him. You have eternal life in you now. And, and this teaches us that eternal life is not some abstract principle. Eternal life is, is a person, right? It's relationship with Jesus, embodied, loving trust in Jesus, empowered by his spirit, transforming us into his likeness. That's what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. His life is inside us by miraculous union because of the work that he's done. That's what it means to be his follower. Resurrection and the life. Jesus says, do you, do you believe this? He asks her, what does Jesus want from us? Like a perfect attendance record on Sunday mornings? Never missed a con group? Have all the Bible memorized? He wants our trust. You can say the love language of God is, is trust. He wants our trust. That's what he delights in. Jesus delights in our trust. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? Now, let's go from Martha to Mary, verse 28 through 32. When she, Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister. Because remember, they're kind of out on the edge of town. So she went to get her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. She said this in private because there's a whole host of professional mourners, professional grievers who are there, and then also people who love Lazarus. They, they're all there mourning. And Mary's with them in the house, and they're all crying. The teacher's here. He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there, and they were going to accompany her. 
Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's different expressions of of disappointment. They're both disappointed, Martha and Mary. They're very different temperaments, very different personalities. And she falls at his feet and she weeps. She doesn't challenge him in the same way, although she expresses like, where were you? And then she's just a puddle. Her tears on his feet. So Mary comes consistently with her character as well, right? She's always found at the feet of Jesus as his, as his disciple. And she's explosive with emotion. Where were you? She breaks open in that grief and she weeps. Man, Jesus, this delay. Was this wise? Was this a good call? I mean, you're causing pain. Well, verse 33 through 37 we get to see the tears on someone else's face. This brings us to the tears of Jesus. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly, greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come, come and see. And then we get that famous verse. You guys can memorize this this week, I promise you. If you can't, we'll talk. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. What timing. I love it. God, you're sovereign and good. Because he has a guttural cry. It rises in him. And we'll talk about why. We hear these profound words. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of the others said, well, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? At this point, we see Jesus cry. Why? Why is he crying? Didn't he say, this isn't going to lead to death? I'm going to awaken him? Like, doesn't Jesus know what he's about to do? Why in the world... Is Jesus crying? Is this for, is this drama? Is this uh, religious theater? What's going on? Seems there's a couple reasons here. Jesus weeping because he loves his friend. And his friend is rotting in a grave. Chapter 11, verse 3 says, Mary and Martha say, Lord, the one you love is sick. He loved him. Second, Jesus is weeping because he loves this family. And they are torn up. Chapter 11, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loves them. He loves these people. They're dear to him. And they're gutting this thing out right now. And the emotion is getting to him. Guys, Jesus is fully God, but he's fully human. And sometimes we have this weird picture of him as like he's just like nothing affects him. He's fully human he experiences emotions and loss like we all do love grieves the loss of the beloved grief presupposes love that's why we have those guttural cries when our friend is in the ground when our family member is in the casket because we love them therefore we grieve jesus is full of love so he grieves well he's not some celestial stoic right without without emotion He's gutted by the scene of loss. He cares. 
So though he intentionally delayed because he is not a quick fix dealer, and though he is the bringer of eternal life to Lazarus and his sisters and us, he's not cold. He's not distant. He's not unmoved by the pain. He's not unmoved by the groaning that he hears. He cares. He's compassionate. But there's a third reason. The the word for weeping for him is different than the word that is used in Greek for weeping for the family. He's moved to a righteous anger at death. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is why he snorts like a war horse, which we'll get to. Now, some of the crowd sees his tears and they say, see how he cares. Others see and they're confused. They're like, didn't? Didn't he open the eyes of a blind man? He could have healed this guy's sickness. What's up? Why, why didn't he do something? I'm sure some of us have experienced that. We've seen some healing take place in, in some family member's life or some friend's life and God's taking care of it and we see praises over there. But over here, our son or our daughter or our mother or father, someone's sick and there's no healing. Where are you? You were there but not here. So there's confusion in the air. Now, just as the physical eye healing in John wasn't just meant for a physical eye healing, it was meant to to open up the eyes of the heart so that people could see who Jesus is, this healing isn't just to give Lazarus a few bonus years. It's not it. So here we go into the uncanny moment. Are you ready for the funeral in reverse? Are we ready? (laughs) Okay. 38 through 40. Then Jesus deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. We can laugh, that's uncomfortable. He's going to smell. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? See, Jesus weeps. He's moved. And here it says he's deeply troubled. The word means snorts like a war horse. In through the nose, out through the mouth with intense energy. He's angry at death. He's angry at evil. He's angry righteously at sin. He's angry at that which kills, steals, and destroys. At that which hurts his beloved because he is our divine lover. And our God is a warrior God. He wars against that which destroys the beauty of his creation. That which tears apart the tethers of shalom and peace. He grieves, but grief does not get the last word. The joy of his victory gets the last word. Death does not get the last word. Life, life with Jesus gets the last word. So like a warrior facing a dragon, he breathes in hard through his nose, exhales loudly through his mouth, and he steps in to conquer death. Take away the stone. Take away the stone. 
These are death-fighting words. The light of life speaks into the darkness of death. Here's a picture, by the way, of what's considered the traditional tomb of Lazarus for 2,000 years. Because um, this village has been there for that long. This was identified centuries and centuries ago as the tomb of Lazarus. Whether it is or not, I don't know. But the reality is we're dealing with real life, not myth. There's a longitude, there's a latitude. There's a zip code, there's an address, there's stones, there's dust. Someone came back because Jesus came to this earth. And Martha, who's just eminently practical and gets stuff done, she's like, Jesus, take that away, it's going to stink. You can't do that. I think the King James is like, he stinketh. No way, Jesus, he stinketh. (laughs) Again, four days is meant to communicate, Jesus is too late. But he's not. He's at the right place, at the right time, to do a glorious thing. His glory, a glimpse into the brightness of who he is, is about to shine. Look at verse 41, on to 44. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He's already prayed. He's already been in communion with the Father. He's in constant communion with the Father. He knows the Father hears him, so he gives thanks. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they would believe. Why did John write this book? That we would believe in Jesus and have eternal life. Jesus wants us to know the truth, that we would trust in him and believe. So he says, I said this, that they may believe that that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out. What a line. Not Lazarus came out, the man who died, in case we forgot. The man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The stone's removed. Jesus lifts up his eyes. He speaks to the Father. The crowd is all around. He knows that they can hear him. This is for their good. So they know that Jesus does the will of the Father. Jesus is in in this beautiful union with the Father. What he does is what he sees the Father doing. And he does it by the power of the Spirit. So he prays this out loud. That we would see the Father. Because that's what Jesus does, is he reveals the Father by the power of the Spirit. And the end game is what? Trust that eternal life would be shed abroad into this world. And then what does Jesus do? He cries out. The vocal cords of the Son of God move, right? His word goes out into the darkness. His word slays death. His word brings life into a cold and disintegrating body. Lazarus, come out of there. Come out of there. Doro exo. That sounds epic when you say it in Greek, right? Doro exo. I'm going to start to say that to my kids. Like, come on out. Doro exo. Here, come out here is what it means. Lazarus, come out here to me. Come out from the darkness. Come into the light. I'm here. God. Man. A personal name. 
a command, all issued by a heart of love. Come to me, Lazarus. Death meets Jesus. And life wins. I wonder what kind of dramatic pause took place. How far did people lean forward? How far were they leaning forward to peer into the darkness of that cave? I wonder how Mary and Martha's heartbeats rose, how their blood pressure went up, how their palms started to sweat, how butterflies were swarming in their stomach after Jesus said, come here. I imagine the silence was thick and people were listening for any kind of shuffling sound or any kind of scraping sound, any kind of sound of life coming from the lightless cave. Put yourself there. And then... Was, was, did you? Was that something? A scraping. A muted scraping. Some soft shuffling sound. And then the dead man came out. <laughs> At that, what guttural cries of joy. Shrieks of joyful crying. And a celebration would have exploded. Can you imagine the sound going from that complete silence to the shuffling to this just almost like a, almost like water pour, uh, putting out fire and just like this hiss of steam, like just, ah, something has changed in reality. Can you imagine it? One moment the cave was dark, hearts were overcast and anxious. The next moment the cave stirred to life and their hearts were riotous of joy. Jesus has just shown in the most profound and bodily way that he is the resurrection, he is the life, he is Lord over life and death. To come to him, to come to him when he calls our name, he brings the dead to life. That's salvation. Now before we move on, briefly, I, I, I want to hit on this. Don't miss this. There's, there's something incredible here. So he asks who to move the stone? The people, the community. Then he brings the life. And then, then what happens? Then what happens? Well, what does Lazarus look like when he comes out? Right? He looks like a mummy. He's wrapped up. His feet would have been exposed, but he's, he's wrapped up tight. So he comes shuffling out. So what does Jesus say? What does he tell them to do? Go take off those, those death clothes. Take them off. Now get this, those clothes probably still smell like death. Lazarus is alive, but there's death on those clothes. He calls the congregation, he calls the community, move the stone, Jesus does the miracle, then he says, you remove the death clause. He calls the community to participate in resurrection life. If that isn't an image of what the church is, I don't know what is. Jesus does this miracle. He calls us in to engage to remove stones, to remove barriers, to rip off death clothes, to help people walk in this life that he has given them. That they would be free. That's our calling and our commission as the people of God. We get to partner with him in that. It's awesome. So there you have it. There's a story of a dead man walking. Dead man walking. Now maybe at, at this point some of you are going, Heath, cool play on words, but you're totally using it wrong. You do realize what a dead man walking is, right? 
Because a dead man walking is a term that's, that's used to refer to somebody who's on death row, that somebody is walking towards their execution. That's what a dead man walking is. Somebody who's been judged guilty and their heart's about to stop. That's a dead man walking. Well, you do know there's another dead man walking in our passage, right? Verse 45 through 48. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and, uh, and had seen what he did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh no. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. They were going to lose their power. There could be an uprising. The Romans could come in and wipe them all out. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you all know nothing. Nor do you understand that it is better for you. It is better. Listen to what he says. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What is he saying? It's like, you don't get it. We got to kill him. If we don't kill him, we're in trouble. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. Dead man walking. Jesus had just been put on the execution list because he brought a man back from the dead. And that guy was walking around. There's evidence that Jesus was the Messiah and they did not want this. He made that dead man walk. But here's the deal. Lazarus came out, which meant Jesus now had to go in. Bringing life to Lazarus cost Jesus his life. This was the final straw. They're like, we're killing him. We just need to figure out how. You can think of it in these terms. Lazarus came out. He came out of that death cave because Jesus was going in. This is a great exchange. The life of the living one in exchange for the death of of the dead one. Caiaphas was right. One man would have to die in the place of many. He prophesied by the power of spirit. It was an ironic prophecy, an unintentional prophecy. One man had to die for all of us because we couldn't save ourselves. We could never do it. We never can. One had to die for us, take our punishment, and give us the life that was his. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus died to save us from sin, Satan, and death. Caiaphas' political calculus and twisted justification is an unintentional prophecy. One man to die for the many. Now, here's the deal. Think about how, how um, twisted this is. He's like, we want to hold our power. We want to keep our lives. So we will break the law and kill this one, though he's seen to be good. Jesus flips it. Jesus is willing to die for the unrighteous. Jesus is willing to walk towards his cross to save those who put him on it. Jesus, who though he was righteous, sinless, perfectly loving, and undeserving of death, went to the cross and died for us. This Jesus is no quick fix dealer. He is an eternal life giver. Trust him. (laughs) Amen. I'll amen you. Amen. Trust him. (laughs) Trust him. Now, this brings to mind a couple things that will lead us here to our close. Jesus is not a quick fix giver. He is 
the eternal life giver. So a few things here. Jesus is never too late. He is always right on time to display a a needed severe glory. A needed severe glory. Sometimes he needs to get us into a place where there, there is such a veil of tears and a realization of our brokenness that we might eventually see the beauty of his greatness. He provides in his love a severe mercy and a severe glory that we might have eternal life. It's not about the quick fix or just taking away pain in the moment. He loves us too much to prevent all of our suffering. I tell you what, if you're a parent, if you try to prevent all the suffering that your toddler goes through, they'll never walk. They'll they'll never talk. They'll never learn the things that they need to learn. If you take away all the immediacy of pain from your child, you're, you're cutting them off from success and flourishing. Jesus' job is not to take away all of our immediate pain. His job is to see us flourish for eternity. This also means that when Jesus seems four days late, trust that it is for his glory and for your flourishing. We have to trust, even though we don't understand. We don't, I, Jesus isn't here. We send out the text message. We send out the prayer, but... but He's late. I don't, I don't understand. He could have healed. He, he could have. He, I don't know. I don't know why. But he has a reason. And so we trust that the one who has perspective will lead us well. And then this also leads us to this fact that God is not callous to our current suffering. Jesus is our compassionate champion. He's not coldly moving us around like chess pieces and just say, well, I hope you learned your lesson. He enters, it into, he enters into the mess with us. He could have healed Lazarus. He could have brought him back from the dead being miles away with the word, right? We, we, we've seen him do that. But he doesn't. What does he do? He gets near. There's proximity. He hears the weeping. The tears of his friends are on his feet and on his shoulder. He gets into the mess. He cares. So yes, though he will delay for our ultimate good, he's not callous in the moment. He cares. He's compassionate. He weeps. And he's our champion. He conquers death. He conquers death. So what is, what is your four days late situation? What is your four days late situation? Where have you been saying, Jesus, I thought you loved me. Where are you? You're too late. What is it? Name it. Remember it. And then think through these things. Remind yourselves of these truths. Jesus is not a quick fix dealer. He is the eternal life giver. He is not too late. He is always on time to deliver the needed severe glory. He loves you too much to take away all your suffering immediately because he is doing heart surgery on you that you might truly live. That his glory might be displayed. And when he seems four days late, trust him that it is for his glory and your flourishing. And remember that he is with you in the current moment. He is there in the presence of your tears. He is your compassionate champion. And death, he's broken his back. He's won. So, my friends, we are all walking dead men. 
We are all walking dead men until we trust in Jesus, who is the resurrection, who is the life. And if he's your savior, <laughs> then your death bed, your, your casket, your tomb will be just merely the bed of a cat nap, a mere sleep, because you will rise to life. All those who die as followers of Christ will hear him call out one day. Steve, come out of there. Brandon, come out of there. Martha, come out of there. I mean, I had to. Martha, come on, Martha. I mean, come on. Come out. We were all dead men walking, heading unto an eternal death until we trust in Jesus, who is our resurrection and life. Do we believe? Do you believe? Then let us live like the stone has been rolled away. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. You are gracious. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the peace that you bring. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you have gathered us here today to this place of life. You are the one who reverses funerals. You are the one who brings eternal life. So we thank you that we can come to this table of grace in your presence, in the presence of our brothers and sisters. Amen.